so stupid, he comes across in front of me every single time he ever takes. Where does he want me to go off the track? No! Stop talking to me in the braking zone! In the name of Motorsport 101, I claim the Circuit of the Americas under the good name Mark. Welcome to Motorsport 101. Good evening, everybody, as we record this live on a very late <laughs> April 13th, 2016. It is episode 35 of the Motorsport 101 podcast featuring your friendly neighborhood host, Mr. Andre Harris. And then, of course, with me, as ever, we have Mr. Ryan King. Wait, give me a second. I'm making sure... Uh... I'm making sure Mark Marquez's application for permanent residency goes through. Of course, perfect timing. And of course, in the opposite end of the corner, we have Mr. Adam Johnson. Good evening, folks. Good evening. I'm just having a look at the uh, the latest NBA game that's coming out. Um, the cover star. Mm, pretty interesting choice. What do you reckon, Dre? Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Okay, for those of those guys, the, the guys that don't up, know anything. Just me- shut up, shut up. <laughs> I hate you, Johnson. <laughs> it's one of the situations, right, where if you're a basketball fan, you may or may not know I'm a huge Lakers fan, and I and I resent Kobe Bryant's retirement year. His basically is a is a is his farewell tour in his final season, and it's just been announced today that Kobe Bryant is going to be on the cover of NBA 2K17. He'll get an exclusive Legend Edition version of the game where he's basically going to be... Um, his career will be honored. It's, very, it's actually going to be very similar to 2K12 and they had the Michael Jordan edition of the game, which is funny because there was a 2K16 version of the, of the Jordan version of that game too. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling delightful and chirpy right about now regarding this because I'm very cynical about Kobe Bryant over the course of his career. He's, he's turned the Lakers into a dumpster fire twice despite the fact he's one of the best players of all time, and I will not be celebrating his retirement his, his retirement game tonight. You can sod that. I'm going to watch Golden State break history and get their 73rd win of the season. So sod that. Anyway, as I was saying... Are you glad you got that off your chest, mate? Very. All right, now, <laughs> so this is going to be a very much shortened mini edition of the podcast because, honestly, there really hasn't been that much to talk about in the world of motorsport in this past week. So... Talking about the major points, we're going to be covering MotoGP over uh, over at Cota uh, as Mark Marquez wins his fourth consecutive uh, United States Grand Prix at Cota, his 10th straight in America, as Valentino Rossi fell, Danny Pedrosa gave Andrea De Vizioso the power driver treatment, and Suzuki managed their best finish since coming back in 2015. We'll also be talking briefly about Alex Rins winning in Moto2, and Sam Lowe's now leading the championship. Shout out to Bex on that one. And Romano Fanati, who's now who's now do dominated in Moto3 to take his first win of the year and a very topsy-turvy championship table where that's concerned. But of course, overwhelming the discussion in MotoGP right now is the prospect that Jorge Lorenzo might, and, 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 and according to who you ask, probably will be going to Ducati next year for 2017. So we'll be talking about that and the potential ramifications of that. And we'll be talking about a little bit of F1 news as well. We'll be talking about elimination qualifying. And that's now dead and buried. Hooray! No more elimination qualifying for the rest of the season. Until, until next Bernie's week. Probably good. Until Bernie probably finds a way to try and bring it back for next year. Great! <laughs> um, we'll be talking about Fernando Alonso probably being a doubt for China and uh, the subsequent effect of are we probably going to see two races in a row of Stoffel Van Dorn because, hey, we can't get enough of Stoffel season around here. Ain't that right, King? Yep. <laughs> 
Stoffel season two, Stoffel harder. Uh, and, <laughs> and we have the 114th discussion about Hass, uh, about Hass uh, basically, uh, is, is what they're doing legal? Spoiler, yes, it is. And should it be changed? Spoiler, probably not. And also a couple of questions from you, our Patreon backers. And of course, uh, many continued thanks to those guys that have continued to back us on Patreon uh, over the car- over the past couple of months. I haven't had t- actually had time to get around to mentioning you guys by name. Sorry about that. That's me being a lazy fund operator. Um, but hopefully we'll get them off our chest right now. So I'm going to give you a rundown, of course, of all our new backers. So thanks to Jake Callahan. Thanks to Parker Zaglin. Thanks to Carl Seleski. Um, <laughs> Go on. Um, thanks to True Racer as well. And, uh, now, there's a couple of guys from Brazil that's backed us on Patreon. I sincerely apologize in advance if I get your names wrong. This is done completely innocently. It's just one of those things where I'm sure you'll understand as me, a Londoner born and bred, is not going to be usually um, comfortable with pronouncing Brazilian names. So here goes nothing. <laughs> Big thanks to. Uh, Glossian Quilino da Francesca and Ulysses Medanelos de Mauricio for uh, being Patreon backers of the show as well. Nailed well it. done. You got some pronunciation wow. on that wow. as well. That was a lot better than I expected. Well <laughs> yes. <done>. See, see, <laughs> you, you, you guys, you guys doubted me all along. You have no confidence in your in your podcast. So what is wrong with you people? Um, so you know that is one of those things. But uh, thanks to everybody that's been backing us on Patreon. Of course, you can too at patreon.com forward slash Motorsport 101 if you want to back us on there. We've got some cool incentives uh, as ever. Uh, King, have you mailed up those stickers yet by any chance? Uh, not the stickers yet because I still have to buy the postage for those. But the postcard should be the postcards are in the mail. So they should be, you know, there to everyone who's paid for those. Yay! So, in case you guys have been wondering, the stuff is coming. We are catching up. I'm good. Like, I'm, I'm like, like the t-shirts are on my to-do list. I've got to talk to a friend of the show, Steph Hunter, about that one because she's she's really cool with that kind of thing. But yeah, we'll be sorting that out later this month. But uh, yeah, hopefully that and much much more on Motorsport 101. But yeah, like I said, expect this to be a shorter episode because there really isn't that much on the table. But let's talk about MotoGP. And I know a lot of people have been asking me to talk about MotoGP on the podcast because we actually have not dedicated any time to it at all so far this season, and we're already three rounds in. I am a terrible motorsport host. I can only sincerely apologize. <laughs> Forgive us, everybody that's been asking about MotoGP. There will be a lot more of that to come in the coming weeks, I am sure, especially given that Lorenzo is probably going to be on the move. And I've got, a, I've actually got a drink brief idea in the works for that as well. But uh, yeah, King, Kota, we might as well just rename it Marquez Land at this point, right? <laughs> whoa, whoa, this entire country is Marquez Land. Yeah, in case you didn't hear it in the in the, in the beginning of the, the beginning of the episode. This is Mar- Marquez's fourth straight win at Cota and his 10th straight win in the country of America, dating back to Moto2 in 2011, I think it is. So that, that is the... That, like Marquez just seems to be godly in America. I do not understand how he does it, but he is just so good at these American anti-clockwise tracks. I think it's fun to do with the Honda he's on, where I think they seem to really like those left-handers, and they really like it with the nature of the bike. So, you know, Cota, Laguna Seca, um, Indianapolis, what do they all have in common? They're all left-handed anti-clockwise tracks. So maybe that's part of the reason there, King. But uh, a, a dominant performance from Marquez. I mean, he, he finished 6.1 seconds ahead of Jorge lorenzo it, it could have easily been more if he wasn't going you know very very casually towards the end of that grand prix but uh he's just so good around here isn't he my god 
<laughs> yeah, when you when you thought that Hondo was basically, you know, not going to be as dominant as you know Marquez's first championship season, mm. it it seems that around Coda things have not changed at all. Yeah, it seems to me that it seems that Honda have got a bike that sure has issues, and I think the the variance of the results there on the board will tell you about how. I mean, if I remember, I remember in Argentina, Pedrosa finished twenty five seconds behind his teammates. So, and then and then you got guys like you, you could go through the field, you can go back down to you know Tito Rabat, for example. You know, he's you know he's a debuting rookie, but he finished forty seven seconds. Behind, behind, behind Mark Marquez on what is last year's bike, and you know Crutchlow wasn't. You know he got back up after he crashed in the mid stages, but you know the the variance on the bike is great, and we all know that the Yamaha right now is probably the best all round package. And King alluded to a very good point, Johnson, that a lot of us had written Marquez off because of the nature of testing, because of the nature of Honda looking like they've had the same issues as last year, which crippled them throughout the season. Yet, as it stands right now, Mark Marquez has a 21 point lead in the championship. Who would have thought that a month ago? (laughs) Mark Marquez is just the guy who just revels in destroying people's expectations. Doesn't he? He's just, that's what he does at this point. He trashes them underfoot. And it was one of those mesmeric rides that he can produce on a whim and particularly in America it's just his default setting by now um, it's to me it feels like his big issue last year was that it wasn't necessarily that the bike was slow I mean that was an issue but this is Mark Marquez we're talking about he can make that up with his own talent anyway but it, it just felt like the bike was just not comfortable to him anyway that's why we saw uh, a, an amazing sequence of, of crashes and, and wrecks which basically took him out of contention before the season was half over it basically became the Rossi Lorenzo show from about halfway through the championship onwards. So, but then we saw him sort of fight back nearer the end. He was much closer. So I wonder if a combination of last year's events in terms of he knew he had too many DNFs, he had too many incidents, and also the shenanigans with Valentino Rossi near the end of the year. I wonder if that's kind of produced a mentally even tougher Marquez than ever. And it's a case of, well, I know what I've got to do. I understand the bike, even if it's not the fastest on raw speed, I am. In terms of rider ability, he believes that. And it was just special, wasn't it? It was just a great ride. Um, You know, he kept his head while everyone else was losing theirs. It was a great, it was a classic Marquez ride. Yeah, you could very much say that. It was vintage Marquez at the front there. And, you know, it was... Marquez has already made a big deal about and saying he's had to change his riding style this year to to complement the bike and it and its and its issues, but he's making it work beautifully out there. I know, I know. Unfortunately, the more cynical person in me is going to say, but the last two rounds are two that Marquez are probably is probably nearly unbeatable around the normal circumstances. Like Argentina last year was a race he was going to win easily if it wasn't for the fact that Honda changed his tire in Argentina at the last minute, and of course, Cota he's, he's never lost a round, so. That's two of his strongest tracks already taken care of for the year. Next up on the calendar is Jerez in two weeks' time. And Jorge Lorenzo was completely dominant around here last year. He won by, I think, something like seven or eight seconds from from his own teammate, while Marquez had to limp home with a damaged thumb in third. So, yeah, I, I think the next three rounds, King, are going to say a lot about whether Marquez is a true contender because it was this time last year he had those really, really off days um, and he, he had those big crashes like at Mugello, like at Catalonia, where Marquez, as Johnson quite rightly said, was out of the running by then. But can Marquez realistically win this thing? Oh, I, I, 
I just have to echo what you said. It's gonna ha- we're gonna have to see how well he performs in the next couple rounds because, like you said, his early rounds tend to be his strongest. We're gonna really have to see whether it's just Marquez's ability or does the spike really have the potential to be a championship contender? Yeah, like it's like we don't really know for sure because like the only I think the only really representative race so far was Qatar, and Qatar was one where Marquez was in contention. Um, he was in contention. He didn't necessarily go out and win. He, he was only a couple of seconds off the top, and that was a that was a good sign, I think, especially given again, Honda had so many complaints coming out of that camp and tested. You know, Marquez and Pedrosa seemed really miserable with how the bike was going, and when they actually run it, it turns out Marquez has been able to bridge a lot of that gap between him and the Yamahas, and it, it showed on track. And again, Kota was just ridiculous. It was his fifty second. Grand Prix victories, um, which now puts him one above his own teammate, Danny Pedrosa, with 51. And Pedrosa debuted seven years before Marquez did, which is just terrifying. And then Marquez is still only 23 years old. Um, he's already won 52 Grand Prix. I think he's now joint seventh on the all-time list with, um, I think it's Phil Reed there next up. And then he's only two behind Mick Doohan who was a five-time world champion in the top class and one of the most dominant riders of the 90s. So, which is just ridiculous to to think about when you say, look, Marquez is about to surpass McDuin in terms of wins. And the only two guys actively that will have more wins than him is obviously Lorenzo that has, I think, 62. And Rossi that obviously I think has 110. Um... So again, it's just just it's just another case of putting it into context, just how ridiculous this kid is. But for, moving further down the order, Jorge Lorenzo in second with that second place. Um, he said he just he just wanted to finish more than anything else. He wasn't he didn't have any real expectations. He had two big mistakes on the opening lap that nearly cost him dearly. But he was able to recover and finish a pretty comfortable second in the end, about four seconds ahead of Andre Iannone in third, who again kept the Ducati relatively out of trouble. But he he almost inherited that podium because of an incident, Johnson, where Danny Pedrosa got it very very wrong, and there was another unfortunate victim among, amongst that. Oh man, you could it was. It- what made this one unique is that we actually were on the onboard of um, Pedrosa's bike when this happened. Uh, it was uh, it was uh, going into turn one, wasn't it? My memory serves me right. Um, going up the hill, yeah. which was Calamity yeah. Corner. We saw many people go down there. We'll get to that. Um, and uh, front end went in, and normally it would have been a disaster on its own, except that Iannone's bike was turning in further up the road, and he completely wiped out the other Ducati, and you could tell as soon as Pedrosa got up off the ground, he ran straight over to Iannone and was almost sitting there going, I am so... He literally had a look on it. You couldn't see his face because it was under his crash helmet, obviously. But his body language was, oh, I have really done... I'm so sorry. Like, seriously, that was my mistake and I've ended up just torpedoing someone else out of nowhere. This was just... Oh, man. You had to feel for Iannone because he was just... He was minding his own business. And then he gets completely RKO'd by this other bike flying in out of nowhere. <laughs> it was ridiculous. But you got to feel for it. I mean, what I'm interested to, to try and work out, Dre, is just why turn one and that those first few corners appear to be such calamity corners. It's where we saw both Brits go down in the same corner on the same lap. And it was pretty near where uh, Rossi went down as well. Just what was going on up there? I think there's still a lot of concerns about this Michelin front tire. Um, I know that um, Rossi seemed to blame the Michelin front for his crash in the early stages of the race, which again is very uncharacteristic of him, which you you may automatically think Rossi may have a point because that was his first 
DNF since Aragon 2014. Um, that's that's how long ago since Rossi's had a DNF on his record, and he had that the and that was a complete right error. He put a wheel on the uh, on the paint and Aragon uh, in the wet, and down he went. And he took a big concussion that day as well. But that was the first time, and I want to say I think it was something close to 25 races since Rossi's had a accident like that. And he seemed to, to he seemed to blame the Michelin front for taking too long to get warm. That's why he crashed it. And I know you, you alluded to it. Crutchlow and um, Bradley Smith went down at the same time, pretty much at the same time, in the exact same corner at the bottom of the hill. Apparently, there was oil on that part of the track. It was a very slippery part of the track going down the hill into the hairpin. And apparently, that's what caught out Crutchlow and, and Bradley, um, which again, actually ended Bradley Smith's run of 26 straight points scoring finishes as well which is the sixth most in MotoGP history so Bradley had a had a had his streak finished as well unfortunately but yeah talking about Pedrosa I mean oof. it just seemed like again it seemed to be the front it's like it's like Pedrosa just could not get it stopped it is like he he, he outbreaked himself going up the going up the hairpin you, you come in at a, in at about 180 miles an hour towards the apex of turn one there and he just could not get it stopped he ended up the bike he lost control. He went down, and as, and as his bike slides out from underneath him, it just catches Dovi, who, who was he was coming right across the apex, and just was just unfortunate to be in the way. And yeah, brutal one, King. But you got to hear. I mean, Pedrosa is such a great sport about the whole thing. He was he was he was immediately Dovi was okay. He apologized to to Dovi in person in the garage. Oh, was it Dovizioso? Oh God, my apologies. Yeah. Sorry, I was mixing <laughs> yeah, up the two Ducatis. I didn't want to mention it, but yeah, 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 you got the wrong Ducati. It was Dovi that was taken out. But the second consecutive race, Dovi had been taken out by somebody else through no means of his own doing. So Dovi would have been a comfortable second in the championship right now if he if he actually was able to keep both his podium finishes. But he's had a potential 32 points ripped out from underneath him already this season. But yeah, King, a crazy incident in the Pedrosa being good guy Pedrosa on this one, even though he was completely at fault for this one. Yeah, it was completely at fault. Like, uh, like from what I've heard, that Coda has strangely developed into this place where the Texas weather has not been good for this asphalt. There, there, the asphalt's become very abrasive. There's noticeable bumps in places because mm. Texas weather is crazy. I think, I think. Let me try to put this in metric terms. It gets as hot as. 36 degrees during the summer and as cold as five degrees during the winter so nice. the asphalt has to go through a lot of changes through the year so it just ends up being very abrasive easy to lose control so you end up seeing it be a real test for these riders this weekend yeah, it, it seems that way. And again, we had remember last year when they had the big pool of water leak at the, 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 the sector, sector one there that, that caused like a 15-minute delay in the race. And COVID's had a couple of issues like this. And I guess it, King made a very valid point. I mean, I mean Texas weather is something else. Obviously, we, we, all forget, we all remember last year's F1 Grand Prix and uh, <laughs> you know, the, the small matter of a tornado in the vicinity. Um, but yeah, it seems like the, the track rubber is... Um, all over the place in terms of quality over the year because of course it's such an unpredictable atmosphere over there in texas but uh king did you agree with what david emmett said on twitter he said like kota is not really a bike track and and only a car track because i disagreed with him on that entirely because i felt like be i feel like his logic was because the free races were all comfortably won he feels like it's not really a bike track i don't i don't, I don't i'm i'm willing to disagree with him on that uh, was like, 
I lean to disagree with him, but I think people need to realize what makes a bike track and what makes a car track. I'd say that you could say it's a car track because if you make a mistake in a car, it's not going to cost you that much. If you make a mistake on a bike, you're going to end up on the on the pavement. Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. And that's kind of the ruthless no mercy thing that I think many hardcore fans want out of a bike car track quite frankly so yeah everybody's happy or something um i, I disagree with david emmett entirely i think we've had many a, a very good race down here and many we've had pack i think i think part of the problem is, is uh, i think that because one guy was able to leave from the front i think he's trying to condemn the track for it and i disagree because i think Cota's very first moto free race was between jack miller and alex marquez and efren vasquez was, was, a, was a classic and they've had a, a fair few decent races down and don't get me wrong these these this weekend's wasn't particularly good. I think all three races were were slightly above average at best, unfortunately. And you know that just happens in bike racing sometimes, mm. where you know you, you can have a guy take off from the front, and you know it doesn't necessarily mean the track is good or bad. I mean, no one looked at Australia last year and said that's a terrible track because the Mercs won by half a minute. Uh, so <laughs> you know, I, I, so I don't think the logic there really holds up. But uh, I mean, this was a track that was actually co-designed by um, Kevin Schwantz. So there was bikes, you know, this was planned as a top level motorcycle racing tracks as well as a Grand Prix track um, in its own right. So I I don't know. I I don't feel like I feel like the race has panned out in a way where, you know, a guy got a lead and was able to get away. There was no real evolution in the race. I think some races you get, you know races where a tire will come into play and then fade out and you'll get like a sort of natural accordion effect at the front or you'll get a big yeah. battle at the front and guys will be right there but with all the droppings and Marquez just absolutely laying the beat down because he's in America and that's what he does are mm. we surprised really this is what happened no not really I mean I think people are going to make a, a ton of money on just backing Marquez to win at Cody because it's almost nailed on at this point <laughs> if he keeps it upright he will win and that's what he does mm. um, so I just run down the full result real quick Marquez with the win Lorenzo 6.1 seconds back in second Ian Oney third on the podium a very lonely third place for Ian Oney but sometimes that's all that matters um, his first his first points of the season as a matter of fact uh, Maverick Vinales another brilliant performance from the young Spending a 21-year-old in fourth place, a career-high finish for the 21-year-old, and he's going to get all kinds of free agency offers at the end of the season. Make no mistake, or probably during, given how MotoGP City season works. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Alicia Spagaro, his teammate in fifth place, a great result for Alicia. Not to see him back in the top end of the field after struggling a lot with the Suzuki as, as time has gone on, but a good result for Alicia Spagaro. Scott Redding in sixth place for, for the Pramac Ducati team there. So I, I think that's Redding's best performance of his career as well, actually. So Redding in sixth place, a great result for him there on the Pramac team. Something he desperately needed, I think, after a couple of uh, mediocre weekends to start his Ducati career. Uh, Paula Spagaro in seventh uh, for Tech 3 ahead of Michele Pirro, the everybody's favorite policeman backup rider, of course, for Ducati, filling in for Danilo Petrucci in eighth place. That great result for Pirro, but that's his best MotoGP finish ever, I think, for Pirro. So good for him there ahead of Hector Barbara who in case you didn't know already is the highest ranking Ducati rider in the championship right now is Hector Barbara on the on the Ducati <laughs> GP 14.2 with a bike that is 18 months old 
Well done, Hector. boy. Um, then the two Aprilias, Bravo and Bautista, 10th and 11th. Great result for the Aprilia team there. They'll be very happy with that. Eugene Laverty continuing his good run of form in 12th. Ahead of Tita Rabat, Yoni Hernandez, and Laurie Spaz, who was actually taken out mid-race, but actually was able to get back on and continue. He got the final point in 15th place uh, ahead of uh, Cal Crutchlow and Bradley Smith, who again was able to keep going after their incidents, but unfortunately was not able to get back in the points. Only three non-runners, Pedrosa, Dovi, of course, and Valentino, who crashed on lap two. Uh, real quick, runs out of Moto2. King, like, isn't it rare to think that Moto2 was probably the best race of the weekend? Yes. <laughs> that never happens. Yeah. <laughs> like, for those that don't know, Moto2 is, is, is a glorified spec series at this point, and... Like, it tends to be that one guy or two guys tend to run away with it. It was kind of the same thing here, but the story on this one was that there was a really, really fun fight for second, or sorry, to say third, between Johan Zarco, Dominique Agata, Jonas Volga, Simone Corsi, Thomas Luti, and Taka Nakagami. And Nakagami was actually hit quite hard by um, Corsi as they were taking two different lines into turn one and Corsi, you know, anyone, anyone who knows who, what Simone Corsi is like, he's good. He, like he will not deviate from a line. If he, <laughs> he, he, he is coming through and he, and he doesn't care if there's a bike in the way or not. So when poor old Taka had, had, to, had to take the L on that one, he got back on his bike and was able to actually score a point in 15th place, but uh, he will not be best pleased about that one. Cause I think Corsi just went full Corsi on that one, but it was a win for Alex Rins at the front of the field. And I've said it before, Johnson, like Rins has shown superb pace so far this season, but unfortunately I think he's been caught up in other incidents and, you know, he had, he had the, the, the hilarious jump starting Qatar that we all still know and love. And, and obviously America and in Argentina, I should say he was uh, in the middle of the pack to start, but, uh, a nice reminder that Alex Rins is still really frigging good too. <laughs> oh, yes, he's he's superb. He's been one of the uh, the breakout stars of the category for the last couple of years, and this is uh, you feel like this is the season he kind of needs. He's been he's been right there. He's been he's kind of that guy who's been waiting for that chance to step up. He's been the nearly man in both categories so far. You know, he's never quite took the title in Moto Three. Moved up to Moto Two last year, came so close to the title, didn't quite get there. This year is like, come on, this guy has got a motorcycle racing top tier championship in him. Is this the one? Is this it? And it was, again, you know, it's too early in the season to say, but it was a very composed ride, wasn't it? It was very impressive. This was championship tier. If he could produce more like that, then those years of being the runner up may be over at last. Or should be or should be year in the case of Alex Rins because he was he obviously debuted in the class last year and was second overall to a dominant Johan Zarco. Mm. Um, but Rins Rins a comfortable win in a couple of seconds over Sam Lowe's in the end. Like, like, like Rins was never really under any pressure. Lowe seemed to have the pace, but I think he was just caught up a little bit too much early in the early goings to bridge the gap. And uh, Lowe's apparently said he lost all grip in the front tire with four laps to go, which must have been a pretty nerve wracking final four laps. But as we mentioned before, there was a great big fight um, for the rest of the for the last podium sort, which Johan Zarco was able to break free from. So Rins, Lowe's, and Zarco, your top three there. Dominique Agata, nice to see him back up the front there for the Interwitz and Calex team there uh, in fourth place ahead of Jonas Volga. Volga might be real this year, folks. <laughs> um, for, in fifth place on uh, for the Dynavolga uh, intact team there on the Calex. Simone Corsi was the top speed up there in sixth place. 
Um, ahead of Thomas Luti in seventh, ahead of Xavier Simeon, Julian Simon, the other two speed ups there for QMMF there in, ninth, in eighth and ninth, and Marcel Schrotter rounding off the top 10. Frankie Morbidelli was down in 14th of his early strong, but ultimately fruitless start to the season. And that's what before Nakagami got the final point in 15th. Also, King, isn't it kind of funny that like Leopards kind of crapped the bed so far this season? Because both Leopards did not finish in that race. And I, I, there's been a lot of hype about Danny King so far this season. And it looks like Kent has just not worked out so far in, in, in his return to Moto2. Yeah, and his returns to the intermediate class has not been as well as some have hoped. Like, you know, watching BT's coverage, we know that, <laughs> that number one, for some reason, Danny Kent's a rookie. And number two, <laughs> we really hope he's going to get some podiums this year. It's, it's not looking likely at this point. Like, Danny Kent has not shown anything to me that suggests he's going to be on the podium this year outside of maybe one fluke performance or something. Because, mm. like... People, like as, as King rightly alluded to, he was with Tech Three in Moto in Moto uh, Two back in 2013. He 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 did the one year up there. Tech Three have been bottom feeders of Moto Two for quite some time. It didn't really work out. I think I think Kent was I think 13th overall in the championship. He went back to Moto Three with the Husqvarna team in 2014. He won in Mategi. Had a couple of really good performances. Obviously, last season went to Leopard, dominated over there to well to, not to dominated the earlier part at least to, to win his first world championship. Has come up back then alongside his, his title rival, Miguel Oliveira, and he had a technical problem in, uh, for the bike that he couldn't finish. But um, yeah, like Leopard, really struggling there and in Moto3 as well, which I'll get to in a minute. But uh, yeah, the Danny Kent hype train has been very quietly derailed as the season's gone on. But one to the Carrefour in the Moto2 Championship standings. There is four points covering the top four. Lowe's with 47 points. Rins with 46. Johan Zarko, who finished third um, in, in, in Kota with 45. And Thomas Luti with 43. The gatekeeper is still up there, keeping himself relevant. He's eight points ahead of Dominique Agata, rounding off the top five in fifth with 35 points. And Jonas Volga there in 27. He's got to be thinking, what could have been if he didn't bin it in Qatar, the opening round? Because I think he kissed an easy 25 goodbye there. He'd be leading the championship right now. So, yeah, I think Jonas Volga's one to look out for as well. But uh, unfortunately, just not working out for him in that regard. King, like Moto3 is normally the headliner. What the hell happened? <laughs> uh, just didn't have the the intense pack racing that we're used to. <laughs> Yeah, it's like we normally get just this, you know, crazy, crazy pack racing mode. Like Talladega with more corners. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's a NASCAR joke for you guys listening. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just, it's just one of those things where unfortunately just didn't happen. It's Romano Fanati took charge at the front and was gone. Uh, Fanati just completely dominates, wins by 6.6 seconds over Jorge Navarro, who's still looking for elusive first victory. And then Brad Bindo, who I think is now championship leader in third place um, for the Red Bull KTM team. Had a Philip Otel, who qualified on pole position after a nice uh, lap in changeable conditions. So Otel, with his second best ever result in Moto3, um, he, he, he seems to go well in America because he, he had that podium at Indianapolis last year. Well, I remember that as that crazy rain-affected race where Livio Loy got his first Moto3 victory last year. I remember that one. But the best of the Leopards was Andrea Locatelli in fifth place. Um, ahead of Enea Bastianini and Aaron Canet, the rookie in, in, uh, in seventh place, ahead of Livio Loy. 
Jules Danilo, Nicolo Belega, Jakob Kornfly, Juan Van Gravera, Fabio Quattararo, Francesco Baglia, and Andrea Migno rounding off the top 15. So, yeah, unfortunately, Cota just wasn't the best of race, unfortunately. Just one of these things that just happens. I don't know why, that any reason in particular, that everybody struggled. But um, just one of those things. But, uh, yeah, a, a solid race. But, um, yeah, let's move on real quick. And let's talk about <laughs> one of the other big stories, and that's obviously going to be Jorge Lorenzo. And Jorge Lorenzo it has had a lot of talk regarding his future since the season has started. Um, obviously, with Valentino Rossi announcing a two-year extension very early on before the season even started, technically speaking, he announced an extension of Bradley Smith going to KTM. That was announced, obviously, again on the Friday of the opening weekend. It's looking like Lorenzo more and more could be going to Ducati for next season. And... King, this is a this is this is a massive, massive deal with big ramifications up and down the field. But uh what's your early take on on, on Lorenzo? Should he be leading the team at this point in time? Uh it it's a difficult one. With Rossi saying two years, obviously he's gonna have to contend with Rossi for two more years if he stays. But it's fairly clear that most weekends he could finish ahead of Rossi, but you don't he doesn't want to it seems like he doesn't want to be in that environment anymore it's not that he can't be competitive he just doesn't want to be there anymore yeah like that's how it's coming across i know julian Ryder, who's, who's one of the legendary moto gp commentators out there mentioned this on his on uh, a, a planet review he was talking about called riders notes and he mentioned the differences between like the kind of culture of the two of the riders where Rossi has an entourage. He's got people around him to stop, like stop. He's getting private helicopters to the Grand Prix venues. He's got an entourage around him to block people from getting his autograph. And you know, he's very, very, you know, proper, high-profile celebrity kind of figure. While Lorenzo just goes about his business. Really, he's he's, you know, he's only got like a, a couple of his crew members around him on the plane. He's he he he's the kind of guy that sits in the cafeteria and you know just eats by himself, like like. D'Angelo Russell after hacking Nick Young's phone. <laughs> um, that's a basketball joke there. Um, but it's, the, the contrast there is telling, Johnson. And I think, I, I remember somebody, I think an anonymous member of the Yamaha crew saying that a Lorenzo, t- like, like a Rossi title is celebrated like five of Lorenzo's. And when a guy from Yamaha's own camp is saying that, I think you have to wonder why is this guy still here if he's going to be completely shunned when he's done nothing? But I'd argue carry that team for the last six years. Mm. I feel the the cult of Rossi is really coming into effect now, isn't it? It dominated the end of last year. It really, to a degree, took away from Lorenzo's championship victory, which was uh, one of his finest. He had to fight the whole way and it was a mesmeric series of rides that really got the championship together for him and he really had to fight every step of the way. And you wonder if there is a little bit of respect issue there. I wonder if Lorenzo's sitting there going, well, hang on a minute. I have done everything for this team. I've ridden so hard. I've won championships with this team. And yet, and yet, for as long as Valentino Ross is in the other garage, the focus of attention is going to be him. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what he does. That's how it is. And, you know, the fact that he was, there was the unedifying scenes of him being booed, celebrating his championship victory at the end of last year, it, it was just unsavory, wasn't it? So you can understand if he's sitting there going, you know what, 
you know, maybe he's feeling undermined in his own camp. He's, you know, he's the guy who just gets on with it. He's one of those guys. He's, you know, yeah. we can credit Rossi for popularizing motorcycle racing and being like the rock star hero, yeah. you know, messiah of the sport in a way. But if that's not Lorenzo's style and he's got Ducati who have threatened to break through for the last few years, that's the important factor here. Ducati mm. really have threatened to break through for the last few years. Um, if they can get hold of a guy like Lorenzo, that boosts their chances amazingly. And for Lorenzo, it means he becomes the definitive team leader. That's no disrespect to Iannone, Davizioso, the guys that are already over Ducati. But Lorenzo would come in as the top dog, leading the Ducati charge. And you feel like for him, it would he'd kind of be going to a scenario where it would suit his needs more, it would suit his personality more. And no matter how many championships he wins, he would be able to win them on his own terms because guess what? He wouldn't be in the long shadow of Rossi. He'd be, right. it's almost in a way like Lorenzo would be refreshed by the fact that he wouldn't be Rossi's teammate. It's like, you know what? If we're going to go to war for the championship, I'd rather do it for a different team. So I don't have to face you in the garage afterwards. I can win as many as I want. The attention's on me. I'm not constantly fighting to get out of your shadow. And do, do you see what I mean? Do you see like he's, yes. he almost wants to take the battle to Rossi and Marquez on his own terms. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's the fascinating dynamic behind all this. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, that's, 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 that's probably a very fair and valid way of looking at it. And from what I've seen over the years, like over the last three or four years, I think Lorenzo has come out of his shell a lot more in terms of he he's been a lot, he has been a lot more passionate about his, about himself as a competitor and about, I think he's been much more emotional when it comes to his wins. I mean, we all saw it last year at, um, at Aragon, where he, a, race, a race he completely dominated, where he, he gave the shark fin celebration in, in, in mention to Rossi's Misano helmet, which is, again, pretty much homeland. It's basically Mecca for Valentino Rossi fans, because Misano is literally 10 minutes away from where his ranch is. So, and he also had a special shark chasing the fish helmet for that race. That obviously wasn't the race that Marquez would go on to win, but um, a race that Rossi would finish fifth in. But again, a, a race later in Aragon, he, he had the shark fin celebration and that apparently pissed off BT Sport. I remember James Toesland went out of his way to say that, oh, it's that kind of unsportsmanlike behavior that means he'll never be as popular as Rossi. Well, if, if that's the attitude he's having to contend with from all camps, can you blame him for not wanting to be teammates with Rossi anymore? Yeah, for like, wanting like room said, to have like, his own identity. Yeah, like, like I said it before. If that's the kind of treatment that Lorenzo is going to get, who is one of the best bike riders to ever grace the sport, regardless of what anybody says about Valentino, Lorenzo is a top ten all time rider in my opinion as well. So for for Lorenzo to get that kind of treatment, where he's going to be kicked to the curb for Valentino because he obviously he's, he's still going to put butts in the seats. He's obviously the, I argue the biggest draw in all of motorsport, quite frankly, across the board. So, you know, you're right to a degree. I think Lorenzo's got some legitimate reasons for the first time to maybe consider thinking switching. One of them obviously being his Yamaha treatment. Another one, like you said, is Ducati's performance. Now, I'm not so sure on this one because Ducati, have, as we know, Ducati has not won a race since 2010, hmm. and that's that's a long time. That was that was the last year of Casey Stoner with that team before he went to Honda for 2011 and won his second championship. But 
you're right. They have they have dramatically improved the last two years. They have a completely new team. Gigi Delania leading the way. Um, a lot of Audi money, a lot of resources there in that Ducati Camp King. And you have to wonder, is this like a rush situation where they say in the movie that you're never going to win a championship with Jackie X, but you might just win one with Jorge Lorenzo in, in comparison to the two riders they've got? Because it's not like Dovi and Ian only are bad riders. They're actually probably very, very good riders, but they're not they're not Lorenzo. And if yeah. you did Lorenzo bridge that gap. <laughs> yeah, I'd say that Davi like uh, Davi and Ianone are definitely very good riders, but they're not championship riders. And Jorge Lorenzo is definitely a championship rider. And I don't know. I I'm picturing like a hypothetical 2017 big board right now. Is is Ducati gonna enter a third bike if they get Lorenzo? Or are they gonna drop one of the two riders they have? It's, that's a, it's, yeah, it's an interesting question. If, if any team could run free bikes, given the money problems that MotoGP has got for the time being, it's probably Ducati. They've done it before on many occasions where they've run free bikes over a weekend. They'll, also, they'll give Michele Piro a call, um, like, like at Masano last year, where Piro ran there, despite the two obviously regular Ducati riders being there. So they, they will run free on many occasions. They have and they they can and they will. Obviously, the many much of the talk this year is whether Casey Stoner will do that, which at the moment is not going to happen. But, you know, of course, as long as Casey is there, as, long, as much as his fans remain hungry, of course, there's always going to be a desire to see Casey on that third bike. But you're absolutely right. I think, could they run free bikes? I think that's a possibility they've got to consider as well. And Ducati are close. They're not quite there yet, but they're close. Uh, and, you know, a, a Lorenzo is a rider that could, it could be the couple attempts a lap they need to maybe take them over the top. And that could be a factor. And of course, the money. I mean, holy crap. We're, we're like, there's, there's rumors going around it could be anywhere between 11 and $20 million a year for Jorge Lorenzo to take, to take this deal. Like, like MotoGP contracts are often very secretive. They, they, they don't give out the numbers on these things at all. They're kept very, very private. But the, the talk in the camp is we could be talking at least $11 million a year up to maybe 20 a year, which is top-tier Formula 1 driver money at this point in time. That's something like 13, 14 million a year, and only a handful of drivers in F1 are on that kind of money. The elite are on that money in Formula 1, and that's a very alarming set of figures. But uh, I'm going to put you guys under the gun here. If you're Jorge Lorenzo, do you pull the trigger? Johnson, you first. It's it's a good question. Uh, It would depend... You're probably asking for a straight yes or no answer, aren't you? Uh, no, feel free to explain to because this is this is not a straightforward situation at all. Like, no. there, there's legitimate pros and cons on either side here. <laughs> yeah, and for me, uh, if I'm Lorenzo, ultimately, as much as we've said a lot about Rossi and the the atmosphere in that camp, he's probably on the best overall package for him to win races and championships right now. It would depend on what Ducati offered, not in terms of money, because uh, I feel like Lorenzo's, you know, he's not exactly going around oh, yeah. surviving on beans on toast as it is. He's, no, he'll be on very good money. Factory um, money. It's going to be very good money because they, they, they gave him the big contract in 2010 when Rossi left. Exactly. So, you know, 
Yes. So for me, it'd be what Ducati could offer from a technical and winning championship standpoint. That's the thing. Race drivers and riders, very pragmatic beings at the end of the day. They want success and they want the best chance possible of victory. Can you give me that? If so, we're in business. And for me, it feels like, you know, we were talking earlier about those guys who are the difference between really good uh, drivers and riders, racers, um, and guys who will win races and championships. And what you get with Lorenzo, that's the reason why Ducati are throwing huge numbers around here. With Lorenzo, you get a huge amount. You you don't just win. You don't just get a championship winning rider. You don't just get one of the greatest in MotoGP history. You get a guy with a huge amount of experience. And to me, it feels to me like he would work hard behind the scenes on the development of the bike. And he would work hard on the setup. He would work hard on, um, you know, helping his teammates out. If he was a leader, he would lead that, you know, to use a phrase from other sports, he would lead the locker room. Um, And I feel like that's why Ducati, like at this point, it feels like Ducati need Lorenzo more than Lorenzo needs Ducati. So if I'm Lorenzo at this point, Ducati have got to offer something to me beyond just money to persuade me to leave this overall really good package. You know, just being outside of Rossi's shadow might not be enough. But at the same time, we don't know Jorge personally. It might be. It might be the case of, hey, I've done everything I can at Yamaha. These guys are insistent on making this the temple of Rossi. I'm going with Ducati because I think that I can make them into a championship winning team. And that on its own, that ego, that little thing in a race driver's or a racer's ego saying, hey, I can be the one to win with this team when no one else could, I'll Mm. be the one who did it. That can be quite powerful. So if Lorenzo wants to leave a legacy with Ducati, that could be the persuading factor. I mean... There's only a handful of riders that have ever won the championship of two different manufacturers. Valentino Rossi is one of those dudes, and he's made it like he changed his tune regarding Lorenzo and his motivation behind him. Because um, shout out to uh, our our podcast uh, thumbnail designer Sarah Daniela, who's a big fan of the show and big friend of the show. So shout out to her as ever. And she said it. She she posted a, a quote from the Saxon Ring back in 2014, where he said. Jorge Lorenzo is towards the effect of Jorge Lorenzo is a very motivating figure. It's it's a, it's, it's a he's a great guy to have as a yardstick on the same bike to try and beat. After Argentina last week, Rossi came out and said that R- R- Lorenzo needs big balls to go to Ducati. So you, you could see that Rossi is playing the mind games again. Oh, he is. He, look, he he wants Lorenzo out of that team because it could very easily clear a path for him to get to title number 10 if that Ducati is not competitive enough. Because again, as we mentioned before, the Yamaha is blatantly the best all-round bike in the field, without question. So again, it, it's a very, very risky proposition. And in, in Rossi, for Rossi, it's kind of in his best interest to try and get Lorenzo out of that team because on paper... That's your number one title threat right there. Um, not so much Marquez, even though you could easily argue Marquez is just as bad a threat on, on, on that Honda, despite the issues it's got. Marquez is, is clearly able to at least nullify a lot of that. But King, on your end, I mean, weighing it all up, if, if, you, if you're Lorenzo, I mean, what, what do you do? I mean, this is, this is, a, this is a very, very important decision like this is, this is like let's break out lebron james dedicate an hour to espn airtime <laughs> you know say it's for charity and you know, let, let's 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 get it out there what, what do you reckon oh i would i would agree with the johnson it depends on what ducati can bring to the table like my gut instinct 
says go like yes you could win another championship but do you just want another championship or do you want to you know you can go to ducati shove it in in (laughs) in uh, valentino rossi's face not only win it you know a title with a different manufacturer but win it with a manufacturer that rossi couldn't (laughs) yeah because we as i said ego's powerful yeah, Valentino Rossi went to tw- went to Ducati in twenty or twenty ten. Did two years there. Didn't win a single race. W- was well documented how much he struggled with the team, and he admitted it didn't work. And Ducati's list of quality riders is like notches on a bedpost. You've got Nicky Hayden, you've got Loris Caparossi, you've got Andrea Davizioso, Andrea Iannone currently at the moment. You could go back a little bit further as well with guys like Cal Crutchlow, who was, again, a very solid rider, but again, not good enough to get anything out of that bike. So they have so many riders that have been through those doors in the last five years and it's not been able to work. And again, even including the greatest rider of all time and like again before, it's a very special club of riders that have only won that one on two different manufacturers. Valentino Rossi is one, Casey Stoner is another one, Agostini is one, um, Wayne Rainey is another one. Um, so there's there's only I think five or six that have won on two different manufacturers. And like Lorenzo, I've said before, is a top I'd say top eight or nine rider of all time. Like if he wins a title on the Ducati. He goes right into the top three or four at that point in time because that would be unprecedented in, in this modern era. We we all know Ducati have struggled for about oh, seven or eight years now. So for me, I think he's twenty nine next month. I think that I think I think King's right. I think winning a fourth top flight title with Yamaha doesn't really change his position when it comes to his legacy. It's like, it reminds me a lot of Tom Brady. There was not really a big difference between him winning ring, ring number three and ring number four in terms of, you know, is he, is he the goat basically? And people were saying that when he had three, the fact he had four didn't really change anything at that point in time. I'm thinking the same kind of thing here with Lorenzo. Like he's won three world titles with Yamaha Winning a fourth, I don't think is a massive difference. Winning a fourth with Yamaha would be huge. Winning a fourth with Ducati would be huge. In the same way, I think Vettel in F1, winning a fifth world title with, with Ferrari would be absolutely insane. So for me, I think you pull the trigger. I I think there's I agree. I think there's I think there's too much. I think there's too much of a push from Yamaha, and I think there's too big of a pull from Ducati for him to ignore it for any longer because like he's he's not going to be the number one guy in the sport or at least look that way until Rossi retires which is not going to be for another three seasons now so at that point Lorenzo will be 32 and his best years could already be behind him so you know what while he's in his prime I say cash in and and make the switch but uh if you're listening to the show, why don't leave a comment and tell me what you think? Should Lorenzo jump ship? Well, I'd love to hear you guys take this because there's so many different angles regarding this that could make it interesting going forward. And, you know, from the money to the to the status at Yamaha to the Ducati factor, are they good enough, et cetera. And there's so many different angles. And I think that's what makes this story so intriguing. But, uh, okay, King, here's a scenario for you. Lorenzo pulls the trigger, goes to Ducati. Who do you, if you're Lynn Jarvis... Who do you replace him with? Ooh, I like I'd be very tempted to take one of the boys currently at Ducati. I'd be very Ooh. tempted. So <laughs> you're saying, deal. 
direct, <laughs> yeah. face effectively a straight swap for maybe Ianoni. Yeah, yeah, I would. I'd probably be leaning towards Ianoni to pick up. Can I just say though? I have a feeling that whoever would come in to replace Lorenzo, a certain V Rossi would have a big say in it. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, honestly, like I think, I think King touched upon something that I've not seen anybody mention yet, and that was the possibility of a straight swap. I, no one has talked about that. Mm. And yeah, again, the Rossi influence that Johnson just said, I think absolutely valid too. I don't think Rossi's going to want a young and nipping at his heels. He no wants way. that no team way. to be team and he wants that team spearheaded towards title number 10 before he retires because he, he now knows he's got three more cracks at it more unlikely and you know time is running out and you know he, he he could very easily sink back to 2013 rossi where he was averaging like a fourth place finish every grand prix i think a swap could be doable for me it seems like the nailed on favorite johnson is maverick vinales <laughs> Mm, I mean that that that's not a bad shout, is it? He's he would fit that bracket of the 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 building for the future kind of guy, and and a guy who we've we've all been waiting for the for the breakout. I mean, we can agree on that. But I just can't get over the fact that Rossi is going to have a big say in this. You're absolutely right. He's not going to want a youngster that could be a potential threat. He's going to want a guy who I think is going to be young enough to build the team or keep the team going once he retires. But whilst he's still around. You ain't getting in my way. It's not happening. So uh, I, I, I don't want to say the Heike Kovalainen into his Lewis Hamilton 08, but I oh, don't know. It's, it's That's mm, fair. It's, That's fair. To, yeah. I think if Rossi to... has that big a presence in the Yamaha garage, as, you know, so big that Lorenzo, the multi-time champion, is completely overshadowed in the post-race debrief, I can't see him not having a big... He must have power of veto as to who he has as a teammate coming in, right? Or he would mm. insist on it, surely. He'd have a big say in the matter, I'm sure of that. I'm not sure mm. about power of veto, but um, yeah, I think he'd certainly have a big say in it. And I, Maverick is a stud. He is he is an insane talent for 21 years old. And it reminds me a lot of Honda's current situation where Marquez obviously inadvertently is spearheading that team right now while Pedrosa is just about good enough to pick up the pieces in case in case Marquez has a bad day. We also we saw that towards the end of last season where Pedrosa won two rounds right at the end, where Marquez, you know, wasn't on his wasn't at his best. And Pedrosa came through and won a couple of rounds to get Grand Prix win number 50 in Mategi, for example. But yeah, I think that dynamic, I think, is one that's gonna work. I think like I don't think you really want two top tier potential riders in the same team because I think you could very easily take points off each other. We saw it at McLaren a few years ago when they had Hamilton and Jensen Button hmm. where they were beating each other up, basically fighting each other for top tier positions. And in the end, neither of them won a championship in that in that team at that time. And like, for example, if, if Vinales went to Honda, do you think Marquez wants another young'un in his midst? No, he's got he's got it perfect right now. Bedrosa is not good enough to win the title on his own. You have a guy that you can have you can build your team around one guy. You've got a very solid second tier guy. Keep Pedrosa around. He's a great brand figure for the name because he's done eleven years of that team already. So, you know, you've got it made. I'm not sure Yamaha are gonna want a second guy, King, but let's be honest. Valentino Rossi being thirty seven years old. They're going to have to think young eventually, and Maverick could be the nailed-on franchise piece for the next, like, 
10, 15 years, couldn't he? Yeah, like, oh, God. Like, if I had to go, like, completely out of left field here and say, who would Rossi want? I would just, like, out of my head, like, oh, crazy Rossi pick. I'd probably go Franco Morbidelli from Moto2. Oh, absolutely. I think I think that's an absolutely, you know, valid option. I think, remember, people forget Morbidelli is a part of the VR46 Academy. He was the, he's the top graduate out of that camp so far. Directly but, uh, he's obviously the, the direct lineage. He's there in Mark, with Mark VDS in Moto2 right now, which is basically a MotoGP team in sheep's clothing. They have a ridiculous amount of resources down there. They've had championship success in the past with Tito Rabat. They had Scott Redding, was a, who was a runner-up in the VDS camp originally a couple of years ago in 2013. So, Morbidelli, maybe not there. Maybe the Tech 3 seat that Bradley Smith is leaving behind for now might be a more realistic option, but I think Morbidelli is certainly one to watch in that regard as well. Me, personally, I think Vinales is too big a prospect to ignore. I think that is a guy you want on your team for the next decade. And I think it, I think Yamaha would be foolish not to not to just open the boat for Maverick Vinales and just say, hey, yeah, we're, okay, we know Rossi's here till 2018. Okay, we got it. But then it's your team. <laughs> it's, your, it's, it's your team, D'Angelo. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Piss off, King. <laughs> Ching. <laughs> well played five five points to Gryffindor uh, it, yes yes <laughs> he threw me off my game there without shit um, but yeah yeah I think that is definitely I think that's got to be plan B for, for Lynn Jarvis get your franchise piece for the next 10 years and if not there's always Alex Rins. Rins is down there in Moto2 right now with the Pons team and I know Pons is, is vying for that last MotoGP seat um, the 24th spot on the grid for next year. And there's, 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 there's a bunch of guys bidding on that spot, um, including Pons, including I'm hearing Nicky um, uh, Io wants that seat. I've heard possibilities that Leopard might bid for that final seat to get a ladder system for getting some MotoGP from them as well in every class. But King, there was a rumor going around in, in, in moving around that Valentino Rossi might want his own team representing the VR46 Academy. Like what? <laughs> <laughs> like, um, yeah, I, I heard it. It sounded ridiculous that Valentino Rossi was thinking about getting an entry into MotoGP to start his own team to either be a factory-supported Yamaha or KTM. I was like, this sounds crazy, but it's Valentino Rossi, so anything's on the table. <laughs> yeah, we all know of the influence that... Um the, the Valentino Rossi has in the sport, the pull, the gravitas, the factor where that's concerned. He has the academy and the academy, well, it hasn't had the best track record so far. I mean, Renato, Romano Fanati's their most famous name in that camp, and he's not really been able to put it all together in Moto3. Frankie Morbidelli is the, is the, is the highest ranked graduate of that academy right now, obviously with Mark VDS in Moto2, but they haven't really had a a franchise piece come out of academy just yet but hey have your own team bring franco up next year you know the the, the natural lineage of that goes on because for, for martin because fanati will be in moto 2 next year regardless with the speed up team so again you could just easily bomb that conveyor belt on i i don't think it will happen i think there's too many bigger names with too much money to make this happen like with Cito, like with um like with um cito ponds and whatnot but I think that's certainly one that's worth keeping an eye on just in case. Wait, but how much money does Rossi have? 
to be fair, he he's probably he's uh, to, to to quote Sean Penn in GoldenEye in forty eight hours, you and I will have more money than God. And <laughs> so, if anybody could make it happen, Valentino probably would be that guy. So, well, I, it wouldn't I, surprise I'd me say, if he's coming towards the end of his career. Then it's the perfect. If he's already created that academy system, tearing it all the way through the the ladders would make total sense. But it's whether it's too early or not, because mm-hmm. we can. It could be a, an, a genuine situation where he goes half season with a manufacturer and it's basically a third factory seat for a manufacturer, but Valentino Rossi gets to decide who rides that bike. Mm, that would be very interesting indeed. So yeah, that, that'll just about do it for MotoGP this time around. I hope you I hope that guys uh, hope you guys like that. We've dedicated nearly an hour to that to MotoGP, so I hope you guys that um moving on to some of the news real quick again not an awful lot to really talk about in uh in the world of other motorsport really this 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 week around but uh good news king the elimination qualifying is dead yes Yes. (laughs) sing hallelujah but no no dre tell me tell me is it actually dead is it really properly dead now well dead for the rest of the season if that's a plus it's like, like a bond villain isn't it it's like it yeah. will it will come back on next week's episode won't it it, it yeah, it's, it's not dead it will find a way to escape and then come back it's like a batman villain it, it's it's jaws from the bond movies just when you think he's dead he comes back in the next movie <laughs> exactly yeah. yeah yeah so king it's dead and buried for at least the rest of this season like obviously i think it's fair to say common sense prevailed here especially given off that all the teams actually managed to agree on something which is a miracle in yeah. itself. <laughs> yeah, after the after they sent an angry letter, worded letter to the FOM and FIA saying they wanted this changed, it happened and it finally made it all the way up the ladder of F1 governing bodies to be voted upon and said, yeah, this has changed. Yeah. So it's like, it's basically Jean and Bernie had to roll over and hold this L effectively as a... Uh, the teams actually agreed on on uh, unanimously to a, a reversion to 2015, and the teams actually got their way. And Johnson, I think it's fair to say that this whole deal has never really been about qualifying, has it? It's always been more about political power and you know just how much influence the teams have, and and how much influence maybe the sports governing bodies have, have got. Like obviously, in the case of Bernie as commercial rights holder and John as president of the FIA, I mean, I think that's what the real story has been here all along, and it looks like at least for now, the teams have prevailed on this one. Which I don't think we expected to see, really, did we? I mean, it makes sense to frame it in that uh, regard, in that context, because. You know, we all noticed it straight away. He said, why is qualifying being changed? Qualifying, there was nothing wrong with the format to begin with. Why is that now being changed? And then they're being so stubborn and really digging their heels in about it. This was a power struggle. This was a, a power struggle in so many words. Um, we then saw, you know, the GPDA letter come out criticizing the leadership. Bernie Eccleston taking shots of the drivers. Um, there was a funny picture earlier of a lot of the drivers lined up around a table. And I think Nico Rosberg captioned it. What was it? The... The, the Waffle Club or something, according to Bernie, <laughs> which I thought was very amusing. But there's been you, you tension, a, obviously. Go on. Yeah, he put up a picture today on Twitter. It was, it, was all, it was all the drivers coming together for a group dinner, and I think he called it Windbags on Tour was the hashtag yeah. that he used to describe the picture. Plus five to Nico Rosberg for that one, by the way. But, very nice. Uh, you got yeah, good but, uh, yeah, that, that, yeah, but, yeah, you were saying, Johnson, but yeah, absolutely. That, that's what that's what it was supposed to 
today as we would have said. I'd say the, this power struggle was not a power struggle from the beginning. It was F1's real customers not being happy. It was the F1 circuit promoters told Bernie that they wanted to change in qualifying and they rather have elimination qualifying. And then this happened. And the same thing happened last year about how the circuit promoters saying the the F1 engines are too quiet. We want them to be louder. Yeah, it's like, for, like it's not so much a power struggle. I think it's just more a case of Formula One just has too many friggin' stakeholders at this point <laughs> that it's nearly impossible to keep everybody happy. Um because the promoters, of course, are going to have their say, and of course, they're already getting an eyeful of these raisins of sanctioning fees year to year. So they're struggling to make ends meet as it is, and now they're trying to get the sport at least manipulated to a degree where they can actually make maybe a bit more money out of it to you know recoup some of the cost of it all. But King, I think I think there's just too many stakeholders at this point, isn't it? At this point, really, right? Uh, I wouldn't say there's too many stakeholders. There's too many stakeholders who have a say in how the sports run. <laughs> Six of bit- one, half a dozen of the friggin' other. <laughs> yeah. It's a little bit like, like that Genesis song, isn't it? The land of confusion. There's too many men, too many people making too many problems. And there's not much yeah. love to go around. Can't you see this is a land of confusion, etc. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's about as uh, as, uh, fair, as, as, as fair as you can get, really, that the uh, F1's just got too many stakeholders with power at this point but uh again i think it's i think we all can unanimously say that uh we're glad that common sense prevailed on this one and that we are going back to what worked which was always the 2015 qualifying format and uh hooray f1 does something right so can we please actually talk about the decent actual you know product we're getting on tv that the season has been great so far just get along that last because it's China this weekend. Oh, oh great! Oh. Uh, hey, hey. I, as long as Nico Rosberg finishes second, he'll still have the championship lead. <laughs> Friggin' Ross Capen, <laughs> son of a! No, all right, I'm trying not to swear. I'm not sworn to this episode. I've done very, I've done very well so far. This episode. Yeah, you I'm have. When you said the p word twice? Oh, for God's sake! <laughs> <laughs> That's that's six quid in the pot for Great Ormond Street. Fantastic. You're still doing that's better like, than normal. I mean, you're trying, mate. You're doing well. I'm averaging two an episode. I've, I've been exactly the same ever since I started this idea. <laughs> <laughs> I've not improved at all. But uh, yeah, moving on real quick. Speaking of China, it's looking more doubtful by the day, Johnson, that Fernando Alonso is not going to be healthy for this Grand Prix in time. Well, this is... Starting to confuse me a little bit. I mean, is it me or is Fernando Alonso's uh, fitness always a little bit of a riddle? It's always very confusing, isn't it? We saw this at the start of um, 2015 uh, with the you know the late substitution there, the concussion in testing. My my issue here is why has there been no doctor's announcement or a medical announcement saying you know normally in sport you know saying football in in rugby wrestling whatever you see or you hear like oh. So-and-so has gone down with an injury. He's going to be out four to six weeks. Or, you know, for example, when Tony Stewart um, destroyed himself at the start of this year, there was a very clear indicator saying he's going to be out for at least several months. So everyone knew he was missing at least the first six to ten races of the NASCAR Sprint Cup Series season. Why has there not been a similar thing with Alonso? Why is it, you know, it took us to a few days until race two for him to go, oh, wait, actually, he's not fit to compete at all. And now we're going into China, not any clearer. You thought that the medical check in in uh, Bahrain 
would have gone, well, he's got these injuries and these injuries, which will probably take X amount of weeks to recover from. So we'd know, okay, he's probably going to be out for China. He's going to be out for so over many races. I'm just puzzled as to why that's not happened. Why is his health in such a state of mystery about this? Is it a personal choice? Who knows? I don't know. Um, like, yeah, I think what you said, Johnson, is very fair in the sense of that I don't think anybody, I think the only person that truly knows is, is Fernando himself at this point. And I, I, I wonder, has McLaren brought stuff with them to China just in case uh, Alonso is not good to go? Because I don't think they want to rush Stoffel in on another plane again, just in case he, just in case Alonso isn't cleared. I don't know. I don't know. King, do you know anything about that, King, by any chance? I, I, uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure at all whether Stoffel's in China or not. Yeah, like, like surely, given what happened in, in Malaysia, will be in there, or Malaysia, I should say, Bahrain. It would entirely depend, surely, on if the Super Formula season's started yet. <laughs> if if it hasn't, then he there's no reason why he wouldn't still be with McLaren on a precaution. Right. But as far as I know, uh, it, the season, yeah, no, the season is not due to start for uh, at least, well, not this weekend, it'll be the weekend after. So he, Van Dorn will be free this weekend at the very least. So right. you'd assume so. he's still got to be involved with the team in some capacity. Yeah, they, they, they've got to bring him there just in case. Surely that like that's, that's an absolute no-brainer at this. Like, I, like I, they have to bring him over there just in case. But again, like Alonso himself has been has been you know he's been he's unsure himself whether he can take part or not. And this is coming from the McLaren camp that were desperate to get him to race in Bahrain to the point where they would demand that he be rechecked on the Saturday, thinking he might have a chance of actually clearing it second time round. Like you know a cracked rib and knee pain is going to suddenly go away overnight. <laughs> but um, yeah, a very confusing situation to say the least. And again, I'm not really sure what's going to happen. I think Alonso will probably end up driving unless, again, we'll probably find out tomorrow at the time of taping <laughs> as to whether he's actually going to do this or not. We'll, we'll talk about it obviously more on next week's episode. Now, we actually got some pretty interesting viewer questions from some of our Patreon backers as well that I'm finally getting around to answering. So um, we'll, we'll, we'll tackle those real quick before we get out of Dodge here. Um, first up, a friend of the show and a big Patreon backer, Joshua Sutil. Hello, sir. Uh, hope you're listening and enjoying the show as always. He he tweeted Arab for a Q&A and he said uh, he'd love to get my thoughts on this as well. And that was a question of will Haas get, still get similar support from Ferrari from 2017 and beyond and will slash should new regulations be brought in to stop what Haas did. Now we kind of briefly talked about this last week and the general impression I got was that Haas have not really done anything wrong at all. And I think it's just more down to the fact that certain other customer teams like Williams and force India have been very sassy (laughs) about Hass's, you know, obviously glowing early success of two top six finishes in a row from Grosjean to start the year. And, you know, Hass obviously hitting the ground running right away to start the season. And uh, obviously, well, Williams have not been particularly great so far to start the season. And obviously, Force India have been completely terrible since this season started. So, again, King, I think we've, we've already established that Hass have done nothing illegal here. They've, they've, they've followed the rules in every, in every sense of the term. Like, it seems like. This is like a Marquez Rossi situation from last year. It's like people seem accusing Hass of breaking the code, <laughs> more, more you know, the, the like the, the code or like some some kind of unwritten rule, uh, King. But uh, I, I, again, I think the people that are complaining are being very sassy about this. And I don't think you know you can really point the finger at Hass for any real wrongdoing here, right? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, it it seems like there's a quote-unquote, like you said, code or a proper way of doing things as an independent team in Formula One that they don't like that Haas is number one, done it a different way, and number two, more importantly, been successful doing so. Yeah, right. Out, right like, we've not seen a new team hit the ground running this hard since Brawl, and that was... For origins, they, they had a big technical innovation that got them that early head start. But, like, they've not done anything wrong here. They've just gone about things differently. Again, totally in a legal manner. They, they think, I'm right in saying here, King, they directly went to Ferrari. So they, they asked Ferrari straight up, who's your supplier? Ferrari gave them the info, and they bought all the bits they did from their suppliers, right? Yeah, they did that. The only thing, additionally, that I have to add is that, uh, that their monocoque, their carbon monocoque, was also built by Delara, and mm-hmm. a lot of the information they use was information that was shared to them by Ferrari. And that is perfectly but, legal. Yeah, that's perfectly legal. If another team wants to share this information, they can. Yeah, there's no... You must protect your data. I mean, look at Red Bull and Toro Rosso. They've been doing that kind of crap for seven or eight years now, despite the fact yeah. they're both run independently. Um, you know, then of course, there's going to be some form of data sharing and, you know, a combined relationship there, to at least to some degree. So, yeah, I don't see why people are complaining. I mean, we've had, like I said, we've had Red Bull and Toro Rosso in the sport together for what? Since 2008, I want to say? 2007. 2007, since they've been together. So, again, having Haas and Ferrari have this, again, unique relationship where they're kind of helping each other out to a degree doesn't surprise me at all. And it's perfectly legal. So, you know, I think the other teams just need to shut up and get on with it and find a way to beat them. As I've said before, as I've said before, my last point on this, how many times do we need to reiterate this point? This is exactly what Gene Haas did with his NASCAR operation. He went to Hendrick Mm -hmm. Motorsports and got them to supply engines and cars and, I believe, data. And, you know, you go to the best in the game. You give yourselves every chance to succeed. And it worked. He won the championship in 2014 with Kevin Harvick. using. He beat Hendrick Motorsports using Hendrick engines. And I believe Hendrick built cars. He, they may even built the yep. cars as well. That may have been what they got. This is a, I mean, to me, this is a classic case of, wow, damn, Damn, why didn't I think of that? Why didn't we try and get that sort of deal with, you know, for Williams's case or Force India's? Why didn't we get that deal with Mercedes? Damn it, they managed to get this deal with Ferrari where they've got all sorts going on. You know, there's a there's a jealousy angle, there's an envy angle. It's I I just don't, you know, for me, for fans, you know, I can kind of understand other teams complaining about it because it's basically them mm. saying in so many words damn, I wish we'd been able to get that kind of deal. That's a really sweet deal, and I'm annoyed someone else has used it to beat us. But for fans to complain, you were the guys complaining when the three new teams that arrived in 2010 were like six seconds a lap off the pace. Make your mind up. Do you want uncompetitive teams that are floundering financially after a year, or do you want teams, debut teams to be able to come in and hit the ground running? Make your mind up. Sorry, that's a lot to ask for Formula One fans, considering we don't know what we want from the sport. Let's be real. Yeah, yeah, we we as fans are fickle as hell. I have no, I have no shame in admitting that. I've made that observation countless times when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to the F one audience. We are fickle as hell. We don't know what the hell we want, and you know, it's that situation where again, shout out to a friend of the show, Big Mac, for mentioning this this before on Twitter when I was gone at work watching the Grand Prix but he mentioned himself like he he drew fire at Haas for doing what they were doing as like again for kind of breaking an unwritten law but it's like well 
dude, we, we isn't this what we kind of wanted? You know, a competitive new team, like you know, something to, uh, a more stable new team for the paddock. Like that, that's great for the sport more than anything else. And you know, many continued success to has going forward. Uh, yeah, quite- damn, Gene, back at it again with the sick partnership. I'm just going to leave that one there. <laughs> Tony Stewart is face palming. I'm face palming. Oh. Jesus Christ. It's, uh, okay. okay. That next question from Evan Manley says, all three of you have discussed that you're in favor of increased head protection in motorsport, but you have also said that the halo and full canopy solutions aren't quite the answer. My question is, is there any other choices? And if so, which is the best? If not, would you then settle for the halo? By the way, the podcast is brilliant, and I listen to it on early access every time. That's how much I enjoy it. Thank you, Evan. That's that's very kind of you this to is. suggest. Uh, thank it you. Is. Thank you for backing the show on Patreon yourself. Um, this is a tough one. <laughs> King, I'm not aware of any other major solutions applied to the big two that's been mentioned so far. Feel free to correct me if I'm wrong on this, but for me, it seems like it's going to be the halo of some variety that be the thing going forward in 2017. But I've not seen anything that could be a viable alternative yet, unless, unless I'm missing something here. Feel free to fill me in if you do. Uh, yeah, I think we talked about it on an episode earlier where you talked about what IndyCar is doing and how they're tethering more of the components of the car. And mm-hmm. basically their line of thinking is limit situations where where you're putting driver where where you're putting driver head protection at risk. So basically don't they're basically thinking preventatively, not, you know, after the fact of, yeah, this car is in, in an accident. It's this driver is going to get hit in the head. They're basically limiting those situations as much as they can. Yeah, it's the it's the opposite approach. It's, it's, it's instead of instead of protecting the driver, you're protecting essentially the car itself to reduce the the the, the likelihood of a situation where you have flying debris in the first place. Mm-hmm. So they're taking a different approach to F1, which in which their logic is more well, it's gonna happen. Let's protect the driver in case it does. Um, it's interesting. Um, I've seen I've seen the, the, the Indy guy did a great video about. It. I think it was um, John Beekus, their technical uh, one of their technical pundits that did a great video. They were talking about how they were tethering more parts of the car to stop debris from flying around everywhere. And they're, they're very cheap as well. Okay, we're only about twenty five hundred for a set. Um, yep, yep. They're very cheap to do as well. And again, we'll, we'll have to see down the road if it actually works or not because we haven't had we haven't had a massive amount of heavy crashes where you know debris could go everywhere. But I um, mean, it, it should work. Like they they were like in the. Like in the video, they're des- like in the video, you explain that these tethers were originally designed for rigging on America Cup yachts, where those are <laughs> boats that go like 80 miles an hour. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. And they're, and they're very, very heavy pieces of equipment. Um, yeah. So for me, um, completely agreed. I, I think, I think it's a good, I think it's a good idea. And I'd, I'd like to see an action a bit more. Obviously, before we fully pass judgment, I think it could very easily happen in Formula One without much effort. Um, but you know, again, I can't say the Halo is not going to work. I can't say it, it can and can't. I know people again. People on people on the internet have been very, very dismissive of the Halo before it's even run properly or had a final concept made for it. Well, the uh, thing is, over in the reason why IndyCar are pursuing the tether idea a lot more is that. The point was made straight away that the halo 
you know, you can maybe get away with the visibility issues in Formula One where you're on flat, you know, road circuits where you're looking left and right, you're looking very laterally. In IndyCar, especially on the high banked ovals, you're looking up and to the left, which is exactly right. one of the areas where the halo is going to affect visibility or any sort of canopy is going to affect yes. visibility. So a, uh, a cockpit protection device like that is a lot less viable in IndyCar, hence why they're pursuing alternative measures to avoid instance where debris is going to be flying as much as possible. I mean, the idea of tethers is not really a new one in motorsport. NASCAR did this as far back as 2003. And you may be thinking, well, well NASCAR, you know, they're drivers are ensconced in this big sort of you know body shell and this big chassis for them it was actually protecting the fans because what happened i think it was robbie gordon at daytona he had a, a, a his hood flew up off the car and it broke off the 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 you know the attachments on the hood and it flew over the catch fence and landed in the grandstands and actually injured a couple of spectators so from that moment on they immediately mandated more tethers for the bodywork to stop bits and body panels flying everywhere in the inst- in the case of crashes so that's when i first remember hearing the about tethers for the bodywork and they make total sense in indycar i believe formula one has a similar system because they were talking about with fernando alonso's big crash in australia that the wheels didn't go flying they didn't go into his cockpit so i, I think it's a good way of going you know minimize the risk first because i still think we're a long way off not only a successful universal design for cockpit protection, but universal acceptance of one. And that's often the more important part. We saw some of the dissent from the drivers about the halo, you know, the traditionalist stance of guys like Hamilton and Hulkenberg. It's going to be a while. So minimize the risks of things hitting a driver's head first seems to be the more common sense and the more achievable target. Agreed. Um, Finally, before we wrap up this episode, actually, no, two things are a fab up episode we've got one more question from carl seleski first um it's a very very long question that's the wrong way carl but uh, i'm not going to read the whole thing because i'll be here for the next four minutes we were saying um, war and peace basically yeah exactly like, <laughs> like again we we, we want to finish tonight um <laughs> ideally but, but just just know we we did look through and read through all the questions before we started recording the episode. oh we read it yeah 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 we read yeah, the whole exactly. thing Exactly, I did, and you know, we did read it. We're not skim reading it now for the sake of it. But we, it was it was the effect of talking about pay drivers, and I I mentioned this on the podcast before. And I mentioned it on videos before about how pay driver I've said before is kind of a code word for pay driver you actually don't like. Um, using examples like Rio Harrianto as a negative example, but obviously looking at on the more positive angle from guys like Kevin Magnussen. Of- Massa, and then we made a few NASCAR comparisons, like obviously Danica Patrick, um, because of GoDaddy, as well as Kevin Harvick, and then other guys like Ben Rhodes, um, Carlos Munoz over in IndyCar, and obviously Max Chilton now debuting in IndyCar with Chip Ganassi racing this season. And the the bottom line here is it goes. Uh, I'll read out the the last question here. It says, "My question is, do you think that fan hate of certain pay drivers while liking others or ignoring pretending that they're pay drivers altogether is solely based on who the drivers are and whether they are liked or hated by a majority of the fans, or do fans go deeper than that and judge pay drivers based on whether or not they have, in the fans' mind, earned the seat?" Um, it's it's very complex. Like, this, this is not a straightforward question because ultimately we're speaking for a massive amount of people, and every person's individual perspective could be different. But for me, I certainly think a lot of it is put down to what they see as fair. In my opinion, like for example, Julian Palmer was 
obviously a dominant GP2 champion in 2014. He had done a year at Lotus as a third driver, maximized his opportunities and got on the seat. For me, that kind of screams to me the ideal scenario where you want an F1 driver to be that kind of guy. One at the the junior level, had paid his dues, had got on the seat. He was universally panned by fans alongside Magnussen because they felt like he wasn't worthy and he wasn't very good. Um, which just kind of boggles my mind because you realize on paper, Jolene is exactly what people kind of wanted. A guy, a talented guy coming up for the junior, still relatively young, and you know, paying his using getting a chance, Johnson. So for me, it feels like, yeah, I think it's very much like, well, is he likable? Is he liked? Has he met like all these particular criteria? Because even if you do that, you might still get the, the pay driver shake. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think... To be honest with you, pay driver is a tag that comes up when people use it conveniently as a criticism. Let's be real. That yes. what people mean by when they use the term pay driver is the only reason he's there is because he's a pay driver. But right. I've said this before on the show. Let's be really real about this. Almost all race drivers are pay drivers there are so many drivers who have to bring funds to secure seats even in some cases in factory teams which are the guys you know factory drivers are truly the only non-pay drivers in the sport because they are paid to do it as a job to do motor racing as a job by the manufacturer and even in those cases there are guys who have to bring funds to to secure the seat um it, it happens all over the place you know People, you know, it, there is a reason why motorsport is is often panned as the, as the, you know, the preserve of the rich. This is a sport where Junior Johnson once said, "Yeah, you can become a millionaire in motorsport as long as you start with five million to begin with." So, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, I, I just think it's completely asinine to be honest with you. Not wanting to sound like Roman Reigns, but it just, it is pretty asinine. It's, it, it is, you know, pay driver now is technically a tag you can use for so many drivers in motorsport but when fans use it it's generally as a negative it's generally suggested the subtext behind it is you're only there because you brought a fat check you don't have the talent to actually be there and in a lot of cases i think that's massively unfair i mean Julian palmer was the biggest double standard for me people were crying out for talent from the lower divisions guys who had succeeded in the lower divisions to make it to formula one uh palmer did that he made it to Formula One and then the pay driver tag turned up. I mean, that was convenient timing, wasn't it? And, you know, I mean, there's it's hard to separate. For me, I don't like judging people depending on what money they've brought to the seat. I like to purely judge on what results they actually get behind the wheel. You know, someone like a Paul Menard in NASCAR, you know, of course, he's got his his father's company on the side of the car or whatever. You know, he's he's he's, he's in there for that. But do you know what? He's actually done pretty well the last few seasons in NASCAR. He's gradually improved, and I'd say he warrants his seat. You know, Danica Patrick is, you could say, there for good looks. To be honest with you, I'm sick of the Danica Patrick debate. There is no middle ground with her. She's either the greatest thing ever or so rubbish and, you know, only deserving of a seat in NASCAR because she posed in a bikini for Sports Illustrated. I hate the debate around Danica Patrick because there's no middle ground. There's no just judging her as a race driver. And do you know what? For women in motorsport, I'll get off my soapbox in a minute, but for women in motorsport, that's exactly how you should judge them, just on their merits. Because if you're trying to judge them and say they only got their right because of their looks, then aren't we still compounding the problem with women in motorsport? And 
it's it's very it, it just gets tiresome for me i don't you know trying to debate which driver deserves a seat most and you know trying to say that kevin magnuson is some working class hero even though his dad and some pretty major sponsors helped to fund his seat in renault you know it's it's just not narrative is it you know the narrative is written in a lot of cases even though the facts say that in motorsport you've got to bring funds you've got to bring sponsors so in that respect, almost all race drivers are pay drivers. So what can you do? Yeah. I just like judging people on their merits rather than anything else. It's, it's, it's like you'd almost want to think that the motorsport in general would like to drop the rich man's playground narrative that it's had mm. ever since its inception. As much as, as impossible as that might ultimately be because of the amount of money that's in the sport. I mean, it's it's it's. it's but not, hey, but hey, at least we're not outright outright banning commoners anymore. Yay! <laughs> it's a because that because that was a thing. Yeah, that 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 was a thing, and uh, so yeah, we we have improved from the dark ages. How much is up to is a matter of uh, perspective, but um, for me, yeah, I, I kind of echo Johnson's sentiments. Really, I, I mean, I said it before: pay driver is no longer a term that means pay driver. It means driver you don't like and driver you 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 think Absolutely. is not as good, not as good as your favorite choice for said seat. Yeah. Um, I've always said that, you know, if, if you have the money to be in motorsport and you want to be there, you are more than entitled to be there. That's just the nature of the game, and that's just how business works. You know, if you can bring sponsors to the table, you're going to get sponsors and you're going to get seats and you're going to get opportunities. And motorsport has never been a working-class sport. It's always been a matter of bringing funding. Is it, you know, Car development is expensive at the end of the day. That, like, that, 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 it doesn't take a rocket scientist to work that one out. So... For me, it's 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 ignorance. It's it, it's selective memory. It's convenience that this is still a factor in when it comes to, to when it comes to seats. And uh, yeah, I think that's the long and short of it, really. Before we get out of Dodge, I highly recommend you check out the YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Metasport One Hundred One. I may or may not have put. A certain video highlight of mine from a recent stream I did on Twitch. You can follow me on Twitch at, har- at twitch.tv forward slash Harrison 101. And um, uh, it's, 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 it's not exactly my finest hour, if I'm honest. The um, return to F1 gameplay didn't go well. <laughs> I, I, sh- I should have foreseen something like this. It's like I've been, I've been, I've been retired from F1 YouTube now for four months. I thought, no, let's let's get this achievement. And let's talk to the fans, you know, on Twitch as I, you know, do some masochism. And uh, I find out my efforts were all for nothing. That is all I will say on the matter. If you want to see what I'm talking about, go to youtube.com forward slash motorsport 101. And uh, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. And of course, on there, you'll also see episodes of The Dre Brief, my unique series there, edited by Mr. King himself. Um, some some interesting monologues on motorsport as, as things happen. That'll be back next week, uh, as well as obviously highlights of the podcast as well in uh, all its viewing pleasure. Thanks, Big thanks as ever to the Formula One and IndyCar subreddits for giving us nice little boosts on their content there. And also, I, I hear that the IndyCar subreddit king are big fans of the podcast. Who knew? Yeah. There, there, are, there are many IndyCar subreddits are actually listen to us so shout out to everyone on the IndyCar subreddit you guys are fantastic thank you for all the love and attention we really do appreciate it you guys are awesome thank you very much you're way better than the F1 guys oh shit did I say that out loud <laughs> oh crap and I swore again too <laughs> oh, I nearly went the whole episode by saying the big one oh damn oh man that's £7 for 8 Ormond Street thanks a lot
but um, yeah, as ever, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Harrison101HD. King is at Ryan Eric King. And um, Adam is at AJ underscore Bumbleports. Check us out on SoundCloud. Um, if you like us, please leave a like and spread the word about the podcast as well. And obviously, while you're there, check out Adam Johnson's new show, The Bringers of Noise. He had his pilot out last week talking about the British Touring Car Championship and all things touring car in general, really. More to come from that soon. Is that right, Adam? Yes, pretty much. It's one of those projects that I just keep planning and planning, but next week I'm planning to just go for it. At one of these points, I'm going to have to start. Pilot episode is up. It's me and a uh, uh, fellow touring car fanatic and knowledgeable brain on it, Lewis Glynn, talking about the uh, the season ahead for the British Touring Car Championship. Of course, we're one round down in the British Touring Car Championship now, and any discussion on Andy Neat in the preview, you can pretty much dismiss. But the rest of it's still <laughs> relevant, and from next week onwards, we should be heading on with a full schedule it'll be pretty much about most race cars with a roof um so nascar stock car racing touring cars bit of rally and rally cross bit of gt all the good stuff really all the good stuff and oh by the way if you really liked our MotoGP, it gets even better on downforce radio every friday night as because again you know me and downforce are kind of eh. but i will say that bike live is easily the best thing about the downforce radio network it's humble brag humble brag uh, <laughs> and we are live every friday at 8 p.m on downforce radio so if you're really into your bikes and you liked what you heard on today's show i highly recommend you give us a listen me lewis sudderby and rebecca james most weeks talking about MotoGP, world super bikes pretty super bikes speedway all the good stuff will be on there as well so if you liked what you heard tonight um go out of your way to listen to that too um, it's a show i'm very very proud to be a part of and uh yeah that pretty much is long and the short of it we ended up going much longer than i thought we were going to how about that because <laughs> <laughs> that's what we do we do yeah, but um from me as ever andre harrison from ryan king and from adam johnson thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next time sayonara Like I'm not ready. You are.